Well, as I was uh, studying this particular passage, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, um, an experience came to my mind, um, which many of you will share at least some of this experience. And to you ladies, I, I apologize ahead of time. It's kind of a guy experience, so it probably connects more with guys than girls. But um, it, 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 it's what reminded me, um, this text reminded me of. Uh, back in 1991, I was a sophomore in college, and it was uh, January, and I was, I had my ear like glued to the radio, just starving for news. And many of you may remember that back in 1991, January, our, the war tensions were, were pretty intense in our country. Um, back up about five months to August of 1990, um, uh, Saddam Hussein had invaded the little country of Kuwait and had basically told the world, listen, if anybody tries to take back Kuwait, I'm going to level this place to a graveyard, is what he said. Um, well, that was August of 1990, and, and as you remember, um, if you're old enough to remember, the nations were rallying, and the UN was meeting, and the United States military was mobilizing, and right about that time, I was over in Israel, and so it was tense there, too, because uh, not too much time after I came back, um, there were some missiles that were launched into Israel. So it was just kind of personally intense. I got back in December and then January. If you remember January 17th, we just unleashed over a month of, of just pounding the Iraqi people. Um, and for me, it was also personal. I had friends and roommates who got sent over to Saudi Arabia um, from El Toro and also from Camp Pendleton. And um, so I knew that they were over there, so I just had my ear like to, to, to the radio. Radio, because college and television doesn't mix very well, so they don't let us have TVs in the dorm. So it was my clock radio, or it was my radio in my old truck. I just remember listening, and I remember February 24th, uh, like it was yesterday. I was listening to the radio, because that's the day when we launched the ground offensive. And, um, and I, I was listening, and, and I heard the, whoever the news voice was telling us that two Marine divisions had crossed the border into Kuwait. And that there were two uh, airborne divisions that were descending on, on Saddam Hussein's troops. And, you know, I'm picturing it in my mind, of course. You know, again, I'm a guy, right? And I, I, it probably didn't happen like I imagined it as I'm listening to the radio. But you can picture like a, a million Apache helicopters stunning through the skies and tanks. And from the halls of Monta, you know, just walking through the streets of Kuwait City. And, and it was just kind of this sense of just... I was in that moment, and I don't know exactly how to express the motion without it sounding sinful, but there was a sense of national pride and a sense of awe at the superiority and the sheer might of the United States military. That's what I felt at that moment. And you'll remember, if you're old enough, um, those news images of the, of the people in Kuwait that were cheering on their liberators as our tanks rolled through the streets and liberated their country. Uh, such a raw demonstration of military power um, in the face of someone who seemed so ferocious. Do you remember his, his, uh, his constant threats to the United States, threatening to send our guys back in body bags and, and basically saying that they were going to chase down the Americans at all times to every corner and all that stuff. And here our military is steamrolling over, um, over their hundreds of thousands of Iraqi guards and their tanks. And it was just a moment of just exhilaration of feeling a sense of, wow, well, that's what I think of when I read chapter 8 of Second Samuel, what, what the is, Israelite people must have felt like with King David, who is God's an, a, appointed, anointed warrior king, 
um, having been crowned. And, and throughout this chapter, we see the word defeat, 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 translating the same Hebrew word every time. Conquest, conquest, conquest. And how the Israelites must have felt really for the first time seeing their country expand according to the promises of God to Abraham. I mean, if you think about it or you read the book of Judges, you realize there were at least three centuries, if not four, in which the people of Israel, they were harassed, they were invaded, and they were oppressed over and over and over again. Um, Three, if not four centuries. They were always on the weak end of the scale, always under the domination of of other nations. And so here, for the first time, we see this king um, being used by God to conquer the nations. So it must have just one of those moments where, wow, this, the, the, the Yahweh is steamrolling the, the enemy uh, nations, as well as, and in addition to the fact that the people of Israel had waited almost a thousand years for a promise that was made to their patriarch, a man by the name of Abraham, who God came and said to, probably around the year 1900 BC or so, don't know for sure, where, and it's worth quoting here because it ties into this chapter, where God promised to Abraham, the forefathers of the people of the forefather of the people of Israel, to your offspring I will give this land, and from the river, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. He's like marking off the the frame of of this promised land to Abraham from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates. And and I just want you to keep those underlying parts in mind as I as I read the text. Because really for the first time this promise, at least at some level, on some temporary level, is partially fulfilled. Um, after a thousand years of waiting and after centuries of being oppressed, for the first time we see really the conquest of God through his king David. And I believe this chapter teaches us about, it gives us a kind of a preview, if you will, of, of God's kingdom work, which I'll get to in the second part, but first I simply want to read it, make a couple of historical observations, and then apply it at the end. So this first part is a little bit of a history lesson. Now, um, the chapter is short enough, I thought it would be worth just reading, and um, I have put certain words in colors so that you can kind of take note of them. Let's just read it. This is a story of David's great defeat. You'll notice the word defeat underlined. Every time that word is underlined, it's the same Hebrew word. We read, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Little notation there. Verse 4, and David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, uh, but left enough for 100 chariots. Now, someone asked me after the first service, why did he hamstring all those horses? Doesn't sound very uh, politically correct. I have no idea. It just, there's questions in this text that the text does not itself answer. But David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down, same word, defeated, 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and, and brought tribute. And the Lord, just so we're reminded as to whose victory this really is, 
And the Lord, Yahweh, gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Batah, um, from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, verse 9, king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask him about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. There's that word again. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, or to Yahweh, together with the silver and gold that he, he did dedicated of all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and the result was... David administered justice and equity to all his people. Verse 16 and following gives us his key cabinet members. Joab, the son of Zeruah, um, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, uh, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitib. And Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, all these big names, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. One of the things you, one observation or the first observation is simply to note that, that this whole chapter is about God's establishing his rule over these nations through his anointed king. As a, the, the idea of conquest and defeat is central and core. Yahweh is establishing what we might call his kingdom reign and he's doing it through David, his anointed king. You'll notice there's eight nations that are mentioned. Seven of them are defeated by David. And what should also be noticed is that the way in which it's laid out, David pushes to the west, pushes to the east, pushes to the north, and then pushes to the south. Or if you need a visual, he pushes west to conquer the Philistines. He pushes east to conquer Ammon and the um, And Moab, he pushes north, the Syrians and Zobah, all the way to the Euphrates River. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham. This is the land, all the way to the great river Euphrates. And then he conquered the nations to the south, the Amalekites and, and the Edomites, all the way to what would be the border of Egypt, or in this particular map, the river of Egypt. Here you have the Lord conquering the nations as he promised he would through his anointed king, King David. And make no mistake about it, it was not David's prowess or his military might or the thundering chariots he had who was, which were um, the, 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 the major cause of all of this victory and conquest. Two times it reminds us, the Lord, 
Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. Like you can almost picture, you know, the Israelites listening to the radio, and David just mowed down, you know, the Syrians in the north, and the Philistines who attacked them to the west, and the Moabites to the east, and the Edomites to the south. And the people of Israel just going, wow, I cannot believe this is happening. God is bringing all of this conquest according to the promise he gave through Abraham in our day, after a thousand years of waiting. So that's observation number one. God is establishing his kingdom rule in this chapter through his appointed king, David. Second observation, um, which is intriguing, are the two responses to David's expansion. As I mentioned, there are eight nations that are mentioned here in this chapter, uh, apart from the nation of Israel. Eight nations. Seven of the eight refuse to submit to David. And in almost every um, occurrence of this uh, nation being mentioned, it says that David defeated them. In other words, the ones who resisted David's rule, or should I say Yahweh's rule through David, they were crushed. He, He broke the backbone of them politically and also militarily by might of force. That's one of the ways in which David's kingdom expanded was by force. Conquest to those who would defy or oppose it. But there is one nation mentioned who willingly submit to David. Two different ways that people respond to David's rule. One by defiance and the other through submission, willing submission. That brings us to the the only nation who actually submits, king by the name of Toy. Um, When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David, his own son, his prince, to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. There's one king who, who, at least from all outward appearances, actually cares about David's health, sends his own son, Joram, to bless David. This is a kind of a sign of, of, of affection as well as submission. What you may not notice from your English translation is that his own son by the name of Joram in Hebrew actually means the Lord is exalted. Which suggests that this king toy and perhaps his kingdom were at very least influenced by the worship of Yahweh. Which perhaps explains why he is aligning himself to David. Caring, wanting to bless him, sending his own son whose name is the Lord is exalted. And then he ends by giving him these, these, these gifts, these tributes, these treasures of various precious metals. It's a way of showing affection as well as submission to David's rule. You have two very different ways. By the way, um, if you pan back into the whole of Scripture, it should remind you of another event that took place about a thousand years after this, in which kings from the east came bearing treasures, and they came to worship a child who was far more significant than David, though David was the ancestor. They came to Bethlehem, and there they worshiped the child Jesus. And what did they bring him? They brought him treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
That's what Toy is doing. He's bringing this gift of both submission and alignment to, to David, wanting to bless him and care for him. So here you have two very different responses to Yahweh's rule through David. Um, one is taken by sheer force of might. The other submits willingly to David's rule or to Yahweh's rule through David. That's the second observation. And the third one is simply the fact that in God's kingdom, when he establishes his reign through David, that it is characterized by nature as, as that of justice and equality, or excuse me, equity. So David reigned over all Israel, again, in keeping with the promise to Abraham, um, and David administered justice and equity to all his people, a place of justice. And in our language, justice often, mean, often means the punishment of someone who does wrong, but the, the, the Hebrew or Jewish idea is much broader in that justice also includes compassion, care for the poor, um, protecting and providing for orphans and widows. That is manifestations of, of mercy and also love. So this word justice is huge. So it's a place David has established, or should I say Yahweh has established, at least for a time, a period of peace, a, a place of justice in his kingdom. And that's, this goes to show that, you know, um, the only kind of place where there is true peace and justice uh, in terms of nation or country is when the people who are leaders are actually just and loving men. And David was a man after God's own heart, and as a result, his kingdom was characterized, at least for a time, by justice and by peace and by love. Now you put those kind of three observations together. God established his kingdom um, over the nations through his appointed king, David, that there were two ways that that kingdom expanded, one by willing submission, the other one through um, force of might. And then um, kind of the result of this rule was equity and, and justice, that is the idea of shalom or, or peace. And transitioning from the history to the, to the now, we all know that from what history recorded after that, that this was momentary and temporal, that it did not last and the reason it didn't last is the reason no other government ever lasts. And that is we're all from king to president to governor to city councilman to the people who, who live in the land. We're all by nature sinners. Fundamentally self-serving, grabbing at power and, um, and wanting to exercise dominion and control so as to best our own situation. So this was just a kind of a short-lived materialization, if we may call it that, of the kingdom of God, but ultimately it would fade uh, into history because of sinfulness and corruption, as we will find even in David's own life in two chapters from now. But I do think this chapter provides us what you might call a prophetic preview of God's kingdom work future. And some, one of those big things that we as Christians have to wrap our heads and hearts around that God is doing and means to communicate through this, what you might call temporal materialization of this kingdom idea through his king. One of the things that I believe we should take away from this in terms of a, a truth is that God's purpose in history, and his ultimate purpose in history, you know, is to rule the nations with justice through his appointed and anointed king. That is God's purpose in history, to recover what was lost in Genesis 3, when, at least on a provincial level, um, God's authority was usurped both by a serpent and then by Adam. 
Ultimately, Adam was the one who was made king, but it was lost. The crown was lost, and here for a time, David wears the crown, and we see that there's peace and justice, and God establishes rule for a short time over these nations in fulfillment of the promise. But you can imagine the excitement a thousand years later when the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth, according to the Gospel of Mark, the first words that come out of his mouth are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can understand all the lights going on for the disciples hearing these kinds of things. The, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The one you know that, that, that materialized briefly under the reign of David. It's here and it's in you. Of course, their kingdom theology was all messed up, which is why they were so... Um, Dismayed by the cross, they expected one thing and, and got another thing. But Jesus, like David, is the one who is the one who creates the kingdom of God, um, and that is how God has uh, appointed it to be. So is that God would establish His rule amongst the nations in peace and justice um, through His appointed Son, through His appointed King, the one that David foreshadowed, and that is from Jesus. That's one thing to keep your heart on. To remember, brothers and sisters, that final and full peace and justice, which our world so desperately craves but is completely powerless to attain, resides with one king. And no matter how much we may believe at times that if we have the right man from the right party elected through the right process, that it will fix our world, that is and forever will be until Jesus comes a lie. Which is why we must always keep our eyes on him first and utmost. Our answer, our future, the fix, both for creation, which is fragmented as well as people which are fragmented is fixed on one person God's king God's anointed one the son of David Jesus who came well that's that's one truth just got to just continue to believe as we look beyond our own life the second truth also comes out of the observation we made and I believe is, is supported and confirmed in the New Testament and that is the kingdom of God will conquer the nations it's doing it now but it will do so into the future through two ways that we saw in this chapter. Willing submission or forceful defeat. Willing submission or forceful defeat. Just as we saw, there was a king who submitted willingly to David's rule by the name of Toy, and then seven who resisted him, who were then defeated or crushed. That the kingdom of Jesus has those two sides to it. There are these two responses to it. The way I think about it, and you don't have to adopt this, but I think that there is this soft side to the kingdom, and there is this kind of hard side to the kingdom. The soft side of the kingdom is to recognize that our, our great king, God's anointed, appointed king, his first act of rule was to come, humble himself, lay down his life, bearing upon his own kingly back the the entirety of our sins so that he might absorb God's wrath in our place and make us fit for the kingdom. 
That is to say, um, no one will enter the kingdom of Christ with citizenship papers that are attained by any other means or reason than Jesus died to make me fit to enter the kingdom. That is, that's what he came to do is to die to make us fit for the kingdom and then to, by way of his resurrection and and the giving of the Spirit, to give us new hearts, new creation hearts so that we actually desire him making us fit for his kingdom. That's what you might call the the soft side. And and even now we're told this is the way the kingdom of Christ is expanding, that the, the gospel of the kingdom is going throughout all nations. And when it does, the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom, in other words, We oftentimes detach kingdom from gospel, but I think that's a huge mistake. Um, The gospel of the kingdom says that Jesus has come, and he has laid the foundation of his reign and his death and his resurrection. And now he commands all people of all times to repent. Or Matthew 28, if you will. Um, This this is kingly speech. When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me and so forth. Dr. Coleman spoke about this. But then he talks about baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. There's a new guy on the throne, in essence, in a way of speaking. Go and teach them to obey as my subjects who bow in submissive faith to me because I gave so much for them. And that's how God's kingdom is is currently expanding. You know, God wins us. The Lord wins us through the greatness of his sacrificial and gracious love. He wins our hearts by his sacrifice so that we desire to bow the knee and say, Yes. That's how the kingdom goes. We call it the soft side. And, and Jesus comes to, to, to tender broken souls. And, and you can hear him say, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am humble of heart, and he says, and I am gentle. That's, that's kind of the soft side of the kingdom, which we constantly need to work that into our lives. To know that we don't save ourselves, he saves us. He's the one who sanctifies us and everything. He's the one who makes us fit for the kingdom, he and he alone. That's kind of the soft side of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. But there is this, this what you might call a hard side too. That is, to those who resist to those who defy and say, I will not be ruled over by you like the nations in David's time, there's a very different picture that emerges of Jesus. And it's not one of him you know, crossing the border between heaven and earth on a donkey. Revelation 19 tells us he, he traverses the border between heaven and earth on a white horse. That is a symbol of of victory, of conqueror, of warrior king. Man who rides a white horse is a warrior. He's a general. And there's that side of the kingdom too. And unfortunately, many of us preachers like to kind of soft pedal that part so as not to ruffle the feathers of people who might think, well, that's kind of mean-spirited. And I think to uh, our demise, it, it, it completely strips us of a sense of confidence and courage that our king stands as victor. I can picture in my mind's eye, you know, how, how, is, how is the world? Let's just picture uh, Jesus coming. And, um, and he comes not with uh, um, Roman legions, but he comes with his celestial hosts, as we're told. 
knowing the world you know, knowing the country we know, knowing what little we know about how the UN works, how do you think the world's going to respond? I, I'm, I'm dead serious. I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, do you think they're going to say, hey, again, this is um, speculative and it's not even real. It's just imaginative. Can you imagine the United Nations saying, hey, we need to get together. You know, Jesus is some descended. He's, he's hover, hovering over Washington, D.C., and he's waiting for the nations to decide, are you going to accept me or not? And the U.N. gathers, well, what should consensus be? And do you think that the American people, the lost American people, do you think in general they'll say, this is okay, we'll just bypass the democratic process and, and just go ahead and accept him as our monarch? That's never going to fly. No, the world's going to do exactly what Revelation chapter 20 says it will do. They will gather their forces against the wrath of the Lamb. And there will not even be a war of sorts, but through a mere whisper, just completely brings down by, by force of might those who have opposed his rule. And that is, as I said, that's kind of what you might call the hard side of the kingdom. But make no mistake about it that, you know, granted, we, we go out and we live and we love and we want to speak the gospel of the kingdom so people will willingly know that God loves them, bow their knee in faith and accept him as their king. But for those who don't, we also have to recognize for our own mind's sake that, that he is coming and he will establish his kingdom by force. That's two sides of the kingdom. There's no one who says no. There's no one who says maybe. No, it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every tongue will say, okay, you are king even though I hate you. Those are the two poles of this kingdom and in this, this latter one, this recognizing um, that Jesus is this, um, he is the risen, victorious Christ. That before his presence, Revelation 20, both earth and sky flee away. You can imagine the earth running with its legs away because of the vast, majestic presence of the risen and crowned Jesus. The one who holds the scroll of redemptive history and brings it to a close by his word and his power. That part of, of, of Jesus, not just the Savior King, which we need to know he is gentle Savior separate, but also the warrior King. The one who's majestic and, and, and exalted to the right hand and to believe it. And sometimes we say those words, Jesus is Lord, and it kind of reminds me of like a satellite out there outside of human experience. Like, yeah, we say that. Sounds cliche enough, but, but to actually believe in our everyday life, the simple truth that Jesus already reigns and will bring his reign in fully and completely in some point when the time is fulfilled. And to need, that's a cooking word, right? Kneading dough. My mom used to make bread, and I'd watch her knead the dough. I... Oh, she's not here. I hated her bread because she'd slap peanut butter and jelly on it. It'd be like two inches thick and dry as biscuits. I'd take it to school and it just, you couldn't even eat a bite of that thing. You'd just drink down a gallon of milk to try and swallow one thing of bread. But she, I'd watch her, sorry mom, uh, <laughs> knead the bread and kneading, you know. It's just one of those words where you take the different elements of, that makes bread and you work it 
with your hands so that all of those elements are evenly and thoroughly distributed throughout the whole thing. And to me, the idea that Jesus is the king, it's a truth that shouldn't be a satellite out there. It has to be like needed by the Holy Spirit into every nook and cranny of life. To, to, I mean, as a parent, to know ultimately, Jesus, you still reign over my children. I don't. And, and, and you reign over my workplace. The future there, the finances there, that you reign um, over my cancer. And to just have this grand view of Jesus, and I think many of us have settled for just the more diminished Jesus on a donkey views of Jesus, and we have to have them both the majesty of who we serve as, as kind of typified here in this chapter of the conquering warrior king. Many of you will know, and I'll close with this, or remember the name Johnny Erickson Tata. You remember her? I remember he, seeing her film stuff and her paintings back in the 80s. Born in 1950, and she had that devastating um, diving accident in 1967 when she dove in. Chesapeake Bay, and she broke her neck and lost use of her arms and legs. So she was basically a quadriplegic. And uh, her story is amazing. And anybody who suffers that much um, really deserves to be listened to in how they are working and needing that truth into their lives. Back two, two, two and a half years ago, 2010, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Breast cancer. So um, 2011, 2012, she's been going through therapy, and she lost all her hair. And so you just got to, you know, read her story. It's like, wow, it's just like, it's enough to suffer without the use of arms and legs. But then to find out, I got cancer too? And the woman has suffered an amazing amount of, of pain in her life. And... Um, She wrote this, and I thought it was worth quoting because it just shows the need for our soul to, to maintain this magnificent view of the conquering warrior King Jesus. And she wrote this. She says, here at our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus. Now, I don't think she means, you know, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I don't think she's denying that. She's just saying there's a propensity to always present Jesus as kind of a, a snivelly shepherd. It says, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a portrait that tugs at your sentiments or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people who suffer. And when you're hurting hard, you're neither helped nor inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord like those sugary sentimental images that many of us grew up with. You know what I mean. Jesus with his hair parted down the middle, surrounded by cherubic children and bluebirds. I remember that picture of Jesus. Hair parted down the middle. Back then, people who smoked pot had their hair down the middle. It goes on and says, come on, admit it. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like Morton salt is being poured into your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs and birds and babies. She goes on to say, you want a warrior Jesus, one who commands You want a battlefield, Jesus. You want his rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities to stand at attention. Now, that is well preached right there. 
And that, that is, brothers and sisters, listen, we're supposed to be doing His kingdom work, but how can we do it in, with confidence and with courage if Jesus is just kind of this small, mule-riding, gentle healer? He is that to our souls. But, but this recovering, the sense of the grandeur of the conquering Jesus, so that we can look at cancer in the face and say, this hurts, but I know that someone reigns over this. Or whatever it is, facing your own discouragements or facing relational heartbreak or facing homelessness or abortion issues, to know that we do so, or even facing death, to know that we stare at death in the face and though it may be somewhat fearful, we can still say, Jesus has conquered you. And so I don't have to fear you anymore because you are. He is the resurrection and the life. And you do not have the last word. Now when that dominates our faith, well then, we can walk with courage and confidence and engage in kingdom ministry. Not avoid it, but engage in it knowing that we have a battlefield Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that just makes my heart want to say. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that you have given us a picture of that here. I just ask for each person here that you would, by your spirit, knead into the fabric or the dough of their lives and hearts and behaviors, relationships, their careers. Just knead into those different places the truth that you reign. And that someday, beyond the grave and beyond the resurrection, we together with the saints will will sing the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever to which we look forward with great anticipation to our great hope and the blessed appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's people said.